Alrighty, good morning church, my name is Ross. Luke 10 is where we will be this morning, but we need to do a little bit of preemptive work first. I'm very conscious of our time constraint uh, today, so let's get to it. We're in week four of our five-part series that we have just somewhat cheekily titled Boomtown. In the series, we've been trying to answer the question, how can we as a church in the city of Austin be a people of the same mission that we've always had in a city, in a surrounding, in a context that just won't stop changing, in a place that just won't slow down in terms of its growth? Asked another way, how can we be a people who live by one of kind of our defining characteristics that's always spoken of us as a church? How can we be a people who are for the city when many of us aren't even sure if this is the city for us anymore. Uh, what we've said so far, and I'd encourage you to get on the app and the, and the new website, which is super bougie and bling, um, and check out the previous weeks. What we've said so far is to be for the city, we'll first need to be for the church. If we're going to be a people who are good news for the city, first we have to be that kind of people. And so we've got to be for the church. Second week we said to be for the city, we're going to need to be people who actually open our mouths at some point and share our faith with others. If God is bringing the masses of people to this place, how do we steward that well? Well, we share the good news of the gospel with the people that God brings around us. Uh, week three, last week we said to be for the city, we will need to be a people who bring redemptive purpose to our work because you don't spend most of the time in the city of Austin in church services. You spend most of your time here at work, right? In your vocation, doing your nine to five thing, whatever that is. And we're gonna need to bring a redemptive purpose to that if we're gonna be good news to the people of the city. Today, we're gonna look at how if we're going to be a people who are for the city, then listen carefully, we will need to be a people who serve passionately and consistently the most vulnerable citizens of our city. If we're gonna be a people who are for the city, then we're gonna need to be a people who serve the most vulnerable, overlooked citizens of our city. Now listen, I know that some of you get nervous already. You're kinda squishing in your chairs a little bit, but this is not some sort of new direction for the church. This is not some sort of new declaration that's coming to take away from Christian faithfulness. This isn't a theological shift. This isn't a new focus. Listen very carefully. The people of God have always, always through human history been called to love and serve the underserved. The people of God have been called to be a peculiar people of good news to the poor to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to the overlooked in the societies in which they happen to find themselves through God's sovereign grace. In fact, friends, if we go back to the first fathers of the church, the early church was known distinctively for this one thing. It was part of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus is to care for the poor. You took in the widow, you housed the orphan, you welcomed the stranger and the sojourner in your midst. They did this in the middle of a crumbling Roman empire where no one else would. We know this from the biblical accounts in the book of Acts. We see it in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We see it again in Acts 6. They have to overcome this obstacle, right? What are they known for? There's not a needy one among them. 
They share resources so that no one goes with us. They're known for it. We know it too from the rebukes in James's epistle, which is one of the earliest Christian writings we have. And what we see there is somewhere in the first century already, the church is trying to live out a faith that is separated out from the call to be good news to the poor. And what does James do? He doesn't say like, yeah, that's good. You guys just preach the gospel. Don't worry about this stuff. He goes like, no, that's not our faith. Faith without these sort of works is dead. He says, but we also know it from the writings of history, which found this particular element of the church to be amazing and a little bit confounding. What would confound our surrounding culture at the moment in terms of Christian views? I have some thoughts, but we don't have much time today, right? But if you were to stop someone who doesn't share our faith in the street today and say, evangelical Christians, what do you find confusing about them? Right? That have some ideas. Some of them fair, some of them altogether unfair. When you stopped a Roman citizen in the first three centuries of the church and said, Christians, what do you find confusing about them? One of the first things they would say would be they care for the poor. Uh, Roman Emperor Julian bemoaned the growing influence of Christians through their good deeds to the poor. When he wrote in the middle of the fourth century, he's facing a political power-based crisis in his society, and he's part of what he blames is the Christians. They're undermining Roman government, right? And how are they doing it? Look what he says. He calls it atheism. They call Christians atheists. Why? Because they only believed in one God. The Romans had a pantheon of gods. They got like, we've got so many gods, right? We're theists, and Christians said, no, there's only one. Right? So they had no idea what to do with that, and so they called them atheists. Uh, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. This last week in my study, I got lost in the writings of a third century church leader called Cyprian, as one does, right? Um, this happened because I'm a very sad nerd who needs more hobbies, and I understand that. We're working on it. I'm trying golf. It's not going very well, right? And so normally I just lose myself in some, some really nerdy, abstract Christian writings. And it was fascinating to me this week to, to see the declarations of Cyprian in the third century about Christian faithfulness. Now, they were facing a crisis point in their culture. There was a, an epidemic, so nothing to do with us, right? Um, uh, Rome was trying to determine who they had power over and who they didn't, and so there was a political fracturing of society, so we can't learn anything from this moment in history. And what was happening is the church was being fractured through the epidemic, to be sure, because some wanted to care for the sick, some didn't. Um, some wanted to follow Rome and some didn't, but they were also being fractured through success, through wealth. And so some were following Christ and then realizing, oh no, wait, this is going to cost me something like actual money? Like, no, no, I'm out. And so they were recanting the faith. And so they didn't know in the church who was a real believer and who was not a real believer. And Cyprian was writing this encouragement to the church in 256 AD in the midst of this environment, trying to encourage church leaders. Here's how you can tell who's with us and who is not. Here's how you can tell who's a real believer and who is not a real believer. And he summarized it with this statement. He says, we do not speak great things, but we live them. His fundamental premise, if you read the writings of Cyprian, was that there was no space for Christian religion that taught the gospel and yet was not 
active in the ministry of mercy to the poor and oppressed in their midst. He couldn't understand it. He said, that's not following Christ. I don't know what that is, but that is not the true church. I love this insight from a PhD paper written by Takanori Inui. Again, a nerd, I know, right? He said, Christians revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities. How? By providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless, impoverished, and strangers, Christians offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christians offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemic fires and earthquakes, Christians offered effective nursing services. Thus, The early Christians ministered as a transformative movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the Roman Empire. What a testimony. My friends, we're not unique in redemptive history. Their boomtowns of the day, the boomtowns of the Roman Empire, caused major difficulties in society. And the government was unable, and in this case, unwilling to care for the overlooked. And so what did Christians do? Did they protest? Did they mope? Did they march? They jumped in and they served. It was an unbelievable act of them showing a rejection of the ultimate authority over the government that ruled over them. They were willing to comply in certain areas, but in other areas they rebelled. Where did they rebel? In service. The church became what I'd like to call a blessed nuisance to the Roman authorities. And I think it's our calling still today. They were seen as blessed because they managed to do so much of the care that the government couldn't do, right? But they were a nuisance because they refused to live in obedience to the norms and standards of the Roman Empire. Oh, what a vision for us today. Oh, that the church would again be a blessed nuisance in society. Blessed because we do all the serving that no one else wants to do and we do it well. And a nuisance because we won't live with the norms of the empire that seeks to rule and reign of our lives. Now, this reputation, friends, of being people who care passionately for the poor shouldn't surprise us when we consider that our Lord Jesus Christ launched his public ministry by announcing that he came to preach good news to the poor in Luke 4, quoting Isaiah, right? And who then spent a great deal of his earthly ministry meeting the physical and spiritual needs of those who had been neglected and overlooked by his societal context. This is part of what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Listen carefully. The idea of a church that doesn't care deeply and continually about the needs of the vulnerable and the poor, and I use this word carefully, is anathema in church history up until fairly recently, up until about five decades ago, right? And largely in the Christian West. I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, big, bad, wonderful city, major problems. My parents and I attended an inner city church that, that was surrounded by poverty, right? And so I grew up with a church that had, by sheer necessity, a passion for caring for the poor and vulnerable. You see, when you minister amongst the urban poor, you don't have a choice to segment and say like, oh no, this is the gospel, and then, no, no, we don't do any of that because we don't want to cloud it with any of these things, because the people around you are starving. 
right? And so you don't actually even have access to be able to share the gospel unless you can meet some physical needs. It's only as the church becomes upwardly mobile and moves further and further out of urban cores into the suburbs, right, that suddenly we surround ourselves with people who don't have any of those pressing needs, then it becomes a choice. Then it becomes a choice, right? And so that was the storyline of our family church in some way. And we moved out to the suburbs at a point, and then suddenly you're not encountering the urban poor and the needy and the vulnerable in your society every day. And so suddenly this thing becomes some kind of theological decision. But as a college student, through the initiatives of a great local church that I kind of ran into, I developed a deep passion again for caring for the vulnerable. And I threw myself, I, as a young man, so much zeal into projects connected with poverty alleviation, orphan care, housing for the homeless, HIV treatment and prevention. And as I did so, here's what I discovered that was really, really strange in the Christian tradition. There were Christians doing a lot of this great work, but most of them were from church traditions that I had been taught to be suspicious of theologically. But the people that I handled with trusting, the people that I trusted with handling the Bible, I didn't handle them, they were unhandleable. The people that I trusted with handling the Bible in theologically conservative circles, they were nowhere to be seen in and amongst the poor. What I discovered was that it was a fear in theologically conservative circles of something called the social gospel. And people had become afraid of it because it lived in the realm of Christian liberalism and, and those people didn't believe a lot of what the Bible claimed. And I see that and I recognize that and I see that shift in that movement, right? But the response that I witnessed then that really was, was confusing, the response that I witnessed from conservative evangelical Christians was just to stay away from issues of justice and mercy in case they got labeled as social gospel adherents, like you could catch it like a cold, right? Like, oh, and you'll be guilty by association, so rather just stay away from those things. In addition, 20th century, largely Western modernist thought infiltrated, infiltrated the church um, zeitgeist post-World War II. Part of that thought goes like this that you are a self-made and independent person who works hard for what you have, and therefore the people who don't have didn't work hard and so shouldn't be helped. Definitely not by the state and probably not by the church. Now some of this, friends, I see, right? And some of this is more pagan than Christian in its thoughts. When I travel to India, um, uh, a few years ago, uh, went and saw some Christian ministers doing some work amongst orphans, and their facility got pet- petrol bombed um, uh, by some people who didn't agree with them. I was like, do they hate your doctrine? They're like, no, no, we ha- they hate that we care for the poor. And I was like, why on earth would they hate that you care for the poor? They said, no, no, in the, in the, in the worldview of constant reincarnation, the poor have done something terrible in their previous life. And so to elevate them out is to uh, help them escape from the learning that they, sh- they should have had. These are clearly very bad people, right? <laughs> and so modern evangelicalism lands up being closer to Hinduism than it does to the early church. When we say that no, no, people are individual units and they're therefore responsible purely for their own systems, they're responsible purely for their own outcomes, and therefore to help them would be to set in place um, a system that we don't promote. Now listen, you know from the accent, I'm not from around here, you know, I'm rattling your cages, I understand, it's not my intent, right? 
I understand that we have a healthy skepticism of the government's ability and subsequently a deep desire to not back or promote some sort of governmental systems of care. I get it, I've seen it, I've seen it, right? If you wanna see it messed up, give it to a system of government, right? It doesn't promote good outcomes. I understand that, I really do. The early church believed the same thing. And so what did they do? They waded in where Rome, um, where they didn't think Rome could or Rome should. And they became the solutions to society's ills and problems. They didn't step back. They didn't shrink back. They pressed in where no one else would. That is part of what it means to follow Christ. At the time then, I was lost at sea. I didn't know what to do. Where's my theological home? I, I care about the poor, but, but so much of my theological tradition doesn't seem to. I believed in the Bible. I wanted to be in a community of faith that handled it well, but I read so much in the Bible that spoke of God's heart for the poor and for the oppressed. And so I wanted my life to be about living out a biblical mandate of justice and mercy and truth. And so I embedded myself back then. I'm so grateful in my early 20s in a local church that cared both about declaration and demonstration of the gospel. And I set my mind to studying the biblical theology of God's people caring for those around them. That biblical theology is gonna lay the framework for us today as we jump into Luke chapter 10 in this very familiar text. You all okay? You're like, was that, was that just the introduction? Yes, that was just the introduction. Is the rest gonna be much longer than that? Yes, all right, and so, uh, Kind of get yourself comfy and let's walk through this very, very familiar story. Luke 10, 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, right? So this is key. He's not actually wanting learning. He's wanting to find Jesus out, right? He's wanting to critique him. He's saying, are you saying, are you saying, you've all had this, right? You put something out there on social media, people go like, do you mean this? Like, no, no, I mean what I said, right? I don't mean anything else. I just mean that bit over there. Uh, Oh, but does that mean, no, no. It means that, right? And so this is what's happening. He's coming to test him. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, don't worry. This is not works-based righteousness. The word there is inherit. It's the language of gift, right? And so even in Judaism, there's the understanding that ultimately righteousness is going to have to be a gift of God, right? And so how do I live in the reality of God's kingdom so that he gifts me this true life, this eternal life, this life in heaven as it is here on earth? Well, Jesus answers, what is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. Here's the first observation that is essential for us today. The people of God have always, have always, have always been called to love God and to love people. Now you might go, oh Russell, that's Christianity 101. Yes, and we forget. What's the big call of the Christian life? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes the law. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, Leviticus 19 verse 18. And he says, these are the most important tenets of the law that governs God's people forevermore. Love God and love other people. Why? Well, because God is love. And that means he is worthy of our love. And in love, he made us in his image and likeness, each one of us, with dignity, value, worth, and purpose. And so we are to be a people who receive his love, who return his love to him, and then who share his love with other image bearers. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, these are the great pillars of the law. In other words, 
all other instructions, listen, given to the people of God are essentially outworkings, practical applications in a way of this great foundation. Love God and love your neighbor. How much? With your whole heart with God and as yourself when it comes to your neighbor. Friends, oh, I love this church. I'm so grateful for this church and the call that God has on us. But let's remind ourselves today, the love and the blessing that we have received from God was never supposed to terminate with us. It was never supposed to terminate with us. What we see in the scriptures is that we are part of this ongoing redemptive and restorative story. Scripture has always described redeemed people who are then mandated to bring as much restoration as they can to their surroundings. Oh, I don't have time, but let me just walk you through this quickly, just with a couple of highlights, right? This is what is meant in the promise of blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. Why? So that you will be a blessing and all the nations in the world will be blessed in you, right? I will make you a great nation. Why? For the sake of the blessing of all other nations. The tale of the Old Testament then is one of God establishing this kind of people, a people who are blessed to be a blessing and the people doing well occasionally in their mission and then mostly failing for most of the Old Testament in their mission. And so what does God do? He sends the prophets and a lot of their message is you forgot that it doesn't terminate on you. You forgot that you're supposed to be a blessing to the nations around you. This is what Isaiah said, right? If you need a translator, Isaiah, right? This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 1. I, I encourage you to read it this afternoon, but you, but you might need a strong cup of pre-boiled coffee, right? I'm sitting next to you as you take this in because it's amazing what God says to the people through Isaiah in Isaiah 1. Have you read it? He says their religious ceremonies, their services, their church services grieve and offend him to the point that he says, I hate your assemblies, who called you together like this? He tells them, they're like, you did, right? This is what it means to be a person of God. We get together and we do church like once a week. I mean, should it be more than once a week? Should we do Wednesday nights as well? I think he means we should do Wednesday nights as well. And he says, no, no, I'm grieved when you get together. Why? Why? He says and explains to them that their religious practice that focuses on receiving and celebrating God's merciful blessing but fails to extend that blessing to others grieves his heart. Religious practice that celebrates mercy but doesn't offer mercy offends God. This is what Ezekiel was getting at when he pronounces the judgment of Sodom in Ezekiel 16. He might go like, oh, I know what Sodom did wrong. <laughs> Well, Ezekiel has some insight for us. He says the sin that leads to their downfall, their, their terrible violence, right? And their terribly broken sexual ethic. There's no doubt about that. But what's the, the root sin that leads to that? Well, in Ezekiel, we're told it's because they live for themselves. God tells them through Ezekiel that they are overfed and unconcerned with the needs of the poor. Therefore, they do what is wicked in the sight of the Lord. Overfed and unconcerned. <laughs> We could sell t-shirts with that on, right? Like that describes so much of my life. Overfed 
and unconcerned with the needs of the poor, the root sin of the people of Sodom living for themselves. This is what the psalmist pleads for in Psalm 82. This is what Micah reminds the people of God to return to in Micah 6. Walk humbly with your God. Let that play out in the blessing and the flourishing of, the others, by, of others by loving mercy and by doing justice. Okay, basic principle, right? The people of God have always been called to love God and to manifest that God by loving their neighbor. What do people do with that? Let's jump back to this, this scholar because he's just like me. <laughs> He's just like so many of you, verse 29. But wanting to justify himself. This is the root of the whataboutism. I wanna justify myself. I wanna seem smart and I wanna seem righteous. And so I bring about whatabouts, right? Oh, but what about? Oh, but what about? Oh, but what about? What's the root of that? I wanna justify myself. I wanna take myself off the hook of liability and responsibility. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? You can imagine he kind of asks it kind of with a slightly arrogant air to him. And oh, who is my neighbor? Remember that he's there to test Jesus, not actually to find eternal life himself. Here's the second observation. The people of God have always also sought to limit which people they need to love. <laughs> so the people of God have always been called to love other people. And the answer from the people of God from the beginning has always been like, which people? I need more information. Right? We could criticize this guy all day long, but this is actually the posture of my heart. I'm like, okay, God's people are love people who love people, I get it, define people. Which people do you mean? Because some are not easy to love. God, have you seen some of these folk? They are a disaster, right? I get that I must love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said that the instruction is to love our neighbor and to love our enemy because they are often the same person, <laughs> right? And so we wanna go, well, who's my neighbor? Now, I do that out of a desire to justify myself because I know that my life, my life, isn't a river of blessing to those around me, but looks more like a dam of God's mercy that I hope will just get deeper and deeper for my own comfort and for my own provision. This question had been a constant argument among scholars of the law and for a long time before Jesus came onto the scene. There was a desperate need and desire to narrow the definition. Most scholars in Jesus' day only included the people of Israel. They only include God's covenant people, while some went even narrower. The Pharisees and the Essenes, as a couple of examples, didn't even include all of the people of Israel, only the faithful ones, or those from some of the right tribes. Or get this, some of the extremes only included those with the right political aspirations and beliefs about the liberation of Israel. Those were your neighbor. Everyone else, no. Is there anything new under the sun? What do we keep doing? We just keep shrinking the circle. Smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until we only hang out with people who are like us and we say like that's what it means to love our neighbor. Look at how Jesus sets up his answer though. It's astonishing and wonderful. We mustn't lose the power of it in our surface level familiarity with the story. Look at what he says. You guys okay? It's a lot, I know. It's a lot, all right? You can speak to Kevin Peck. He brought me from South Africa to be here. I still don't know why, and maybe you question that too, right? It's Kevin at austinstone.org, right? So <laughs> verse, verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. Now you go like, oh, good, a priest. Okay, solved. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, oh, thank God, a Levite, right? He'll do what's right. When he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
Now, Jesus describes a scene for them in vivid storytelling that they could actually picture. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was treacherous in parts, a very dangerous people who resided on the way. And so the sight of someone who had fallen into their hands was something they could picture. In addition, listen, this is actually mind-blowing to me. Jesus' first two men walk past, and they do it in a way that actually the listeners to the story would have gone like, that makes sense. Why? They had created ceremonial laws that meant that the most religious, the most religiously elite, in order to maintain their own ceremonial cleanness and in order to maintain their own station of religious power, they presumed social separation so that this is a scenario that the listeners could well picture. They would go, that makes sense because a Levite shouldn't have to touch someone who's been beaten up and is lying half naked because that would remove him from being set apart for us in a powerful position inside society, right? And they accepted it. In their religious system of justification and how it worked, which was actually not how, what the law was intended for, Jesus is going to correct so much of this, the first two men actually maintained righteousness by ignoring the pleas of the vulnerable. Oh my goodness, what? They maintained righteousness through ignoring the pleas of the vulnerable. They sought to protect their ceremonial cleanness and forgot the weightier matters of the law because they thought that ceremonial cleanness was the big idea of redemption, not realizing that the Son of God was going to submit himself to the ultimate uncleanness and defilement in order to provide the very righteousness that they were trying to protect and maintain. There is nothing new under the sun. We've had people leave our church. They said, because you guys seem to be so interested in societal issues and we want to go to a church that just preaches the gospel. I'm like, I I don't actually have a way to start answering that question other than what do you mean by the gospel? You think you can maintain religious righteousness through removing yourself from the needs of the vulnerable? It's a fool's errand. Okay, so we've seen that the biblical narrative shows us that God's people supposed to be a people who love God and who love others. We've seen that we have always been a people seeking to limit who it is that we have to love. But when Jesus himself is faced with this question, he chooses to describe someone who is in a position of utter weakness. A naked man who has nothing and who is half dead lying on the side of the road. Jesus is saying, listen to me very carefully, If you want to truly love your neighbor, start with the most vulnerable person you can think of in society. Start there. If you want to truly love your neighbor, start with the Spirit's help, with the most vulnerable person you can think of in society and start there. He goes on, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I beg your forgiveness. This is going to take a very long time. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. Now at this, friends, we don't understand the societal context here. This would have caused hisses and scowls and mutters, right? Samaritans were hated and feared, and the relationship between them and Jews was tenuous and difficult. I can almost imagine the nervousness of disciples listening because they're starting to recognize the way Jesus teaches, and they know he's about to blow this group and their assumptions up, right? And so Jesus goes, but a Samaritan. You can imagine Peter going, here we go. Oh my gosh, we are going to get so much flack for this. (laughs) I'm not sure what comes next, but I know it's not going to be what these people expect, right? He says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. 
And when he saw the man, he had compassion. What an extravagant picture of seemingly over-the-top kindness and what a genius double-edged message from Jesus. He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. <laughs> it would have been one thing if the story was just to prove that the Samaritan was maybe a neighbor. That would have been like an outlier thought. But to make him the hero of the story, to make him an example of neighborliness, this would have blown the minds of his listeners. And so let's just look quickly at the example of the Samaritan and see some of the principles of neighbor love and service that Jesus teaches us through this fictional character. Now, firstly, serving the vulnerable requires seeing others with compassion. Serving the vulnerable requires seeing others with compassion. All three of these men see the man on the side of the road. The priest saw him, the Levites saw him, but in both of their cases, they saw him and moved on. Look at the difference with the Samaritan. It says in verse 33, he saw the man, he had compassion. The priest and the Levites see the man. They know the need. They know that it's there. Their seeing just doesn't move them to feel anything or do anything. They didn't miss his troubled state with their eyes, but they did fail to see him with any compassion in their hearts. In this way, they saw him, but they also really didn't. Our friends, the needs in our city are many. Who is God asking you to see with compassion? Christians are people who fight to see, to really see others as human, as image bearers, and that should drive compassion out of us, verse 34, what does he do as a result? He isn't just moved, he doesn't just have a cry, he doesn't just put an Instagram post out, drop the mic and say someone needs to do something about this. He went over to him, verse 34. Here's the second principle in this. Serving the vulnerable requires going towards them. It requires going towards them. The day before Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered, he preached from this exact text and he explained how the Samaritan took a great risk in stopping to cross the street in order to help the man. I'd never thought about it before. He's saying there's so many risks that this guy takes in crossing the street. It could have been a setup, right? This could have been a guy faking it, lying there, and as you go there, other robbers jump out. This happened often. Uh, uh, the, the real robber could have still been around waiting for another victim. It could appear to passing travelers that he was, in fact, the one responsible for the crime, right? Now you bend down, help a man get covered in his blood. The next one comes along and goes, Samaritan robbing this man. It's fraught with risk. <laughs> and yet the Samaritan went over to him. Friends, there's always risk in genuine neighbor love. You may get hurt. You probably will. You may be misunderstood <laughs> by many, if not most. Your efforts may fail. You may be actively opposed. The cost to yourself may be great. And yet, true Christian neighbors cross over to where help is needed. Let's go on. He crosses over and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Next principle is this. We're going so quickly now. Serving the vulnerable requires costly sacrifice. There have been too many words spent in commentaries trying to calculate what the Samaritan spent in today's money to meet the needs of this distressed man. We're not actually sure what it was, but it was a lot. Olive oil, wine, bandages, an inn, all of those things were expensive and yet willingly paid by this stranger. As a quick aside, I do wish that modern medicine was a bit more like this. Oh, so Mr. Lester, you're in really bad shape. It's pretty bad. You need some emergency treatment. Well, what do I need? Some Italian food? A little bit of wine, 
and a prolonged stay in the Hotel Emma, right? I was like, okay, that's what you need, that's what I'll do, right? And so um, we do it. What is interesting, though, is that the Samaritan took time to understand the man's needs and then met them sacrificially. He didn't give him loose change. He didn't offer him thoughts and prayers from afar. He gave him what he needed, even at great cost to himself. Friends, if I'm honest, and I do my best to serve you with as much honesty as I can, This is where I so often get off the bus of neighbor love. (laughs) I see the need, I'm moved by compassion, I I cross over to understand and empathize, but then I'm like, yikes, for reals? This is gonna take a lot. It's gonna cost me emotional energy, time, resource, comfort. Yeah, no thanks. Oh Lord, make us people who are willing to pay the cost to love our neighbors. We're nearly there, verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spent. Next principle is this, serving the vulnerable requires long-term commitment. It's a life. The Samaritan set the man up for a full recovery. He made plans for the man's care and then he came back. (laughs) He came back. Some of my most haunting memories of my young folly when I first got excited about some of this stuff is the number of short-term mission trips I went on and then promised some really impoverished people I'd be back to help, and I never went back. The Samaritan goes back. Love of neighbor is a lifelong play with no shortcuts and no quick fixes. Rather, it's a trajectory of our lives. If we're gonna be people who properly incarnate some manifestation of the gospel in the spaces where God has us, then we're gonna need to be a patient people and we're gonna need to engage in some sacred slowness and some righteous repetition of seemingly small and meaningless acts. Today, friends, we're gonna offer you a variety of opportunities across our congregations today for neighbor love to take one step forward. Listen, we know that these aren't ends. None of these will fix major problems, not a single one of them. You know what they are? They are beginnings of a life of service towards the vulnerable. And they'll accomplish very little unless we allow the Spirit to move our hearts to empower us to live lives of service. Neighbor love is often about slowly developed friendships, long play, relational evangelism, and multi-generational views of philanthropy and benevolence and mercy. Don't lose patience where God has you. He works on a different time frame to us, and our job is to be faithful in staying true to the call that he has for us. Verse 36, oh, we can see the end. We're right there. Jesus asks, which of these three, don't you love this teaching method? He's like, no, no, I'm asking you, say it out loud in front of your peers. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Can you imagine the gritted teeth of this poor young teacher of the law? The one who showed mercy to him, right? He said, And then Jesus told him, oh, in one of the coolest instructions in all the scripture, go and do the same. Go and do the same. See, friends, last principle today, serving the vulnerable requires a heart of mercy. If your head's spinning a bit today, all this sounds complex, a little intimidating, then perhaps we ought to let Jesus' main story point guide us. Jesus summarizes this story by saying the one who acts with mercy is the one who is neighborly. 
and that we ought to be a people who strive to live that way, a people of mercy. When we are looking for wisdom in loving our neighbor, then mercy is a good guide. What is the merciful thing to do? In addition, when we run out of fuel due to the ongoing cost of neighbor love, which happens, then a remembrance of Christ's mercy towards us is what can inspire us to keep moving. Maybe you buy all of this today, you're just tired, you've tried. Remember mercy. (laughs) That's the motivation and the fuel that will keep you going. That's the real point of the story today, friends. God, in Christ, has done this for us. And so in a remembrance of his mercy, we act mercifully towards others. We are called, listen, to imitate the Samaritan in the story. That is a clear teaching objective. But if you were to place yourselves in the story, you are most like the man who had been robbed and beaten and is lying in the ditch. And Christ is that good Samaritan who came to care for you. He saw us in our needy state and he saw us, not as others sees us, but he saw us with compassion. What did he do? He crossed over from heaven to earth, leaving his heavenly realm and all the, and everything that goes with that and humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant to come and get us. He crossed over to get us. He paid the costliest sacrifice for our rescue, his very own life. And he played the long game with us. He secured our eternal future and he patiently sanctifies us in this ultimate long game of mercy. Why? Because he is fueled by the love of the Father for us. And so has nothing but an ongoing, constant, eternal outpouring of mercy towards us. Go and do the same. In every single one of our congregations today, there will be opportunities to serve simply, to take one step of love and mercy towards those who are vulnerable in our city. Remember Christ's mercy towards you. And then by the Spirit's help, simply do this. Ask God to help you to take a step towards the life of mercy that we have all been called to live. Go and do the same. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for a a patient and attentive congregation open to the teachings of your word. I pray that your word would be fruitful today. That in the master storytelling of your son, we would see ourselves needy, (laughs) beaten up by life and sin, lying in a ditch, unable to rescue ourselves, and your son came to get us. I pray that our response would be to turn once again to a life of mercy. Father, forgive me, forgive us for where we have segmented our religious lives as if we can be proclaimers of mercy and never demonstrators of mercy, as if the blessings that you have poured out upon us can terminate on us and, and, and not stagnate. Oh, forgive us, Lord. Give us a simple vision today of what it means to be a river of blessing, a people of mercy, of what it means for us to go and do the same. Help us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.